to me, the only sign of hope that I, when I'm looking at, at, at this, is actually um, looking at something like Bitcoin, because you are able to circumvent all these different levels of uh, restriction, whether it's the Israelis or the Palestinian Authority or even Hamas. Hello there. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Compass Mining, and they're not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass, and I am back mining. It is so good to be back mining, and I really, really like these guys. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was really easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin with Compass. You just pick your machines, Choose your hosting facility and they will do all the work for you. Now, if you are interested in getting into mining or you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. And also, let's talk about BlockFi, who recently launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. And now you can get up to $250 in Bitcoin when you join. For people in the US who are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more stats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit cards provides the easiest way because you get 1.5% in Bitcoin back on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack stats as you get Bitcoin back on every purchase. But not only that, you get 2% back in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000 of annual spend. If you're interested in finding out more, please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is where you can claim your $250 back. That is BlockFi.com forward slash Peter. B-L-O-C-K-F-I dot com forward slash P-E-T-E-R. Next up, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. And I'm still using that same Nano S I bought back then. Now, Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can now connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying. I've still not sold a single sat with Gemini because I'm a hodler and we are in a bull market. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. Anyway, hope you enjoy this one. If you want to join the discussion, you can hit me up on our Telegram group, or you can drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Okay, on to the interview. Right. Hello. Good morning, Alex. How are you, man? I'm great. I'm um, really excited about this conversation. Thank you so much for making the space for us to talk to you uh, about, about Palestine, Peter. Not a problem. You always have a permanent and open invite on my podcast. Uh, you know how much I love your work. I was listening to you this morning in the gym with Lex Friedman, which people should go and listen to. I think it's your uh, probably best podcast you've ever done. So, yeah, people should go and listen to that. Uh, good morning, Fadi. Good to see you again. I, last time I saw you was in Oslo a couple of years ago at the Human Rights uh, Freedom Forum. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Alex. It's great to be with both of you. Yes, we had. A, I remember we had a great conversation um, in uh, Oslo at the at the Oslo Freedom Forum 
about Bitcoin and its usage in, in Palestine. And that was almost two, three years ago. Yeah, well, Alex has written an incredible piece. Uh, just a funny little backstory to that. My brother read the article and texted me and said, have you read this article, Alex Gladstein? Do you know him? He's amazing. And at the moment, me and Alex were sat in a car together in El Salvador. So uh, yeah, it's a great piece of work that will also be in the show notes. People should go and read it. It's epic, epic work. This is a, this is a subject I'm particularly interested in. When I, was, uh, when I was in my 20s, I read, well, I attempted to read a book called The Fateful Triangle by Noam Chomsky, which was about the relationship between Israel, Palestine, and the US. I I did struggle with it, but the plight of the Palestinians is something I've always been interested in, uh, but found it difficult because whenever I uh, publicly express any empathy for what's happening to people, especially in Gaza, um, I seem to draw in the hate of people who accuse me of being anti-Semitic when I really just talk about uh, the plight of the people living in Palestine with no support for any political power there. Uh, so it is a subject I'm interested in. I do want to talk about it. But Alex, do you want to just give a background to why you wrote this article? Yeah, and look, I've said very little on Palestine over the last decade, partly because A, I didn't know a lot. Um, B, it is such a difficult topic to get into. No matter what you say, you get attacked by one side or the other. And there's such a preponderance of groups trying to make an impact, or at least that's what I thought. And then, you know, through the lens of Bitcoin, I've just been down this rabbit hole and I've been looking at money, right? And I've been looking at the power relationship between states and individuals through the prison of money. And when I started kind of just pulling the, the paperback a little bit on the Palestine piece through the lens of money, I, I just got completely drawn in. And I was like, oh my God, there's a story here that nobody's telling. And we need to just be pretty objective about the facts and then let the audience determine, you know, their conclusions here. And I I love the fact that we have Fadi here because, you know, Fadi is focused on exposing corruption in the Palestinian Authority uh, and, and, and in Hamas and in the, you know, authoritarian corrupt rulers that, that, you know, rule over the Palestinian people today. And a lot of what we're going to go through uh, is sort of an examination of how the Israeli government kind of works with the Palestinian government as a kind of a client state uh, to to achieve whatever whatever they want to achieve. And the two governments kind of work together um, at expense of the Palestinian people. And I think that's that's what I've kind of learned about this, looking through it via an economic prism. So, so Fadi, uh, the people who listen to this show will know Alex very well. This is probably like his 10th appearance on the show. They know the work he does and where his focus is. Uh, but people who are listening may not know you. So do you just want to introduce yourself? Let people know your background and the work you do. Sure. Um, for the past 10 years, I've been focused on exposing corruption within the Palestinian Authority. Um, I've seen it as an enabler uh, to the dire um, situation that we Palestinians have found ourselves into um, without a transparent government, without um, an anti-corruption movement within the Palestinian society, um, I don't think we could ever uh, achieve the democracy that w- we want uh, for ourselves. And so um, I found myself 
uh, fighting uh, along with a whole network of, of, of people or Palestinians um, inside the Palestinian territories um, using social media like Facebook and uh, Twitter um, and slowly um, exposing the different uh, schemes that the current Palestinian president has been employing to maintain his stronghold economically and, and politically on, um, on the country. Uh, you know, 10 years later, f- millions of followers on, on Facebook um, and also, you know, serious death threats. Um, as recent as, as March, the Palestinian president was very explicit about um, wanting, wanting me dead. Um, the military arm of his movement, Fatah, issued a very explicit death threat saying that um, we would like Fadi al-Salamin dead if we cannot catch him and kill him ourselves. Anybody that can catch him um, is authorized to kill him and it's, a, you know, no repercussions whatsoever. So you could tell from their reaction that I've really, um, you know, by focusing on exposing the corruption, have sort of um, agitated the, the Palestinian Authority and in particular the president because um, and I say the president because um, with all the pressure that was put back on him to condemn the death threat, to call it off, he refused to do so, um, which was very surprising uh, given his, you know, um, usually, uh, especially towards the international community, his recon- reconciliatory uh, tone and, and, and tone that talks about peace and wanting peace Um it was very um, obviously the complete opposite. So that's what I've been doing for the past 10 years, focusing on exposing corruption uh, within the Palestinian Authority. And can you just, so people listening understand what the current political climate is, uh, both in Gaza and in the West Bank, and then just explain a little bit about the corruption that you've been exposing so people understand what's happening. So we have a president who's been in power for 16 years, He was elected for a one uh, term, which is a four-year term. He refuses to hold elections, um, parliamentary or presidential. He uh, dismembered the parliament, cancelled it. Um, He cancelled the legislative uh, body, the uh, judicial body, created his own judicial court, which allows him to rule by decree. So essentially, he's a a monarch with a title president. Um, but that's not the, the worst part. The worst part comes where he, um, and Alex will explain this, he, uh, he controls through his uh, various um, enterprises, he can con- basically controls almost every sector um, of business or every sector that relates to the, to the economy. We have now about 84% of Palestinians, both in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip, that believe that they... Uh, Palestinian Authority is corrupt. Um, 79% of the Palestinian population is calling for the president to step down and resign. And again, he's refusing to do um, all of these um, all of these things. But I, I want Alex to jump in because here's the fascinating part. I used to also do um, in my conversations with. Uh, you know, with news outlets or with with different gatherings, talk more about the politics. Until I started doing this exercise with Alex, and I realized, um, wow, the economics show the situation show so much better than any conversation about the politics. B- 
because um, you just have to show what an average Palestinian would have to go through just to receive um, a wire transfer. You, you sort of go through three or four different layers. Um, and by the time you're at the other end, you sort of see who has the control and who has the final say of what, how much money you get or whether you get the money or not and, and why. Alex, can I ask, just before you get into the financial side of things, mm -hmm. can you just explain uh, a little bit about the current situation in Gaza? Because I saw a film recently which was explaining uh, the situation with regards to uh, the, the economy within Gaza, uh, the issues with power, the average wage, um, mm -hmm. it's essentially a humanitarian crisis. Can, can you explain that first? Yeah, and we'll, we'll work through the history of the region in this conversation. And we're gonna be tying a lot of different threads together. But I think one of the most important links to make is to link Fadi's career uh, exposing corruption at the, in the Palestinian Authority, in the leadership of Palestine, uh, as, as an outcome of Israeli policy. Um, and and the, the sort of TLDR is that in 1967, the Israeli military occupation of the Palestinian territories began. And the, the general um, goal was, to, was economically to make the Palestinian people more dependent on the Israeli economy um, and less sovereign. So even though you had population growth in Gaza and the West Bank over these decades, um, <clears throat> you had less and less farming and less and less manufacturing and more and more uh, laborers coming from Palestine to work in the Israeli economy. In, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you saw a rise in the standard of living of Palestinians. Uh, there's no arguing that. Um, but the, the real backdrop and, and the foundation of what was happening was that they were becoming uh, less independent uh, for themselves, less sovereign, uh, and more dependent on the Israeli economy. You had, uh, a, a, despite an increase, of course, in population, you had a, a smaller and smaller manufacturing base. You had a smaller and smaller uh, capital stock. You had a smaller and smaller agricultural, uh, um, basically, ecosystem. And more and more Palestinians would go to Israel to work. Um, and this was sort of the desired outcome of the Israeli government. I mean, they, they, they wanted uh, the Palestinians to, to be dependent on them. And eventually, uh, by the end of the 80s, the Palestinians, uh, their economic situation became much more severe. Again, it had been okay um, through the 60s and 70s. There was even this idea of um, that Jimmy Carter's administration pushed that like, oh, if the Palestinians are happy and content, like they'll be fine. They won't want any political independence. That was the idea, literally pushed by the Carter administration. And the idea was that as long as their standards of living were kind of gradually going up, that maybe they wouldn't fight for their freedom. Now, that, that changed because in the 80s, there was an economic, uh, there were sort of collapses in the Palestinian economy. Number one, the, the Israeli economy collapsed. There was massive hyperinflation in the Israeli currency, actually. Um, and at the same time, uh, oil collapsed in price. So a lot of Palestinian workers who worked in the Gulf, those remittances, those income streams sort of decreased. So you had a really dark economic time at the end of the 80s. And this is when the Palestinians rose up in what, what's known as the Intifada. And the Intifada was really a strategy to kind of like claim back sovereignty uh, through peaceful means, uh, at first at least, um, through 
agricultural sovereignty and through sort of boycotting the Israeli economic state. And the, the resolution of the Intifada ultimately was the Oslo Accords and the kind of the crowning of Yasser Arafat as the new ruler of, of the Palestinian territories. Um, and, and that's where we come back to the corruption because essentially what the Israelis did is they, they made a tiny concession, but they held the real power. They basically said, okay, Arafat, you can be like the, the, the little ruler of this, of this area, um, but you're gonna follow our rules and all of the rules about money, we're gonna, we're gonna decide. And you're essentially gonna work for us. I mean, and that's really what the Oslo Accords um, uh, you know, laid down was, was a trade-off of um, any possible economic future sovereignty for you know, a, a kind of surface level political sovereignty. And, and that happened in the early 90s. Um, now, you ask about Gaza. Gaza has been, um, since, since then, has really suffered much more dramatically than, than Palestinians in the West Bank, who, who it's not like they've had a great time. And I'll get into that. But uh, let me just try to paint you a picture for the listener of kind of like what, what it's kind of like uh, in, in Gaza. Um, it's a, a strip of territory about five miles wide and 28 miles long. So you can, you can think of like a city like Austin, Texas, um, but twice as densely populated. Um, it's one of the most densely populated places on earth. And maybe you want to think Hong Kong in terms of like how densely packed it is, uh, but, but like besieged in the desert, um, with like crumbling infrastructure. I mean, that's really kind of what, what Gaza is. And, um, over the last three, four decades, the two million people who live in Gaza have suffered from uh, what I would call civilizational collapse, um, and and half of these people are under the age of eighteen. Um, and and really, the backstory is that after the establishment of the PA, um, tensions continued to, to rise and 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 to fester between Palestinians and their rulers and the Israelis. And there was a second intifada, and as in in the late nineties. Uh, around the turn of the century. And as a reaction, the Israeli government basically turned off a lot of the ability for Gazans to, to enter the labor market in Israel. So what ends up happening is you force the Gazans and the uh, broader Palestinian population to be dependent on your labor market, and then you close it off. So, so it wrecked the economy um, in, in Gaza. Um, and then in 2007, after Hamas like won this election, uh, which was disputed by you know everybody in the world. This terrorist group won an election um, in Gaza. The Israeli and the Egyptian governments, you know, closed off Gaza. So not only were they like kind of raised to be dependent on the outside world, uh, but then they, the outside world was cut off from them. Um, and as a result, um, th there's uh, basically the statistics of, of socioeconomic statistics are unfathomable. I'll just give a couple, just, just to give you some more context. So a 15-year-old living in Gaza today is the survivor of four major wars between their government and the Israeli government, the most recent taking place this spring. Um, there's about 800,000 Gazans that, that don't have access to clean drinking water. Um, they can only exit into the outside world through two checkpoints. Um, in 2012, the UN published a paper about Gaza saying that it would be unlivable by 2020. That was their prediction. Well, I mean, here, here we are. Um, the unemployment rate is about 50% in Gaza. And for under the age of 30, it's 64%. Um, one out of every two Gazans live in poverty. 
80% are dependent on food handouts or some sort of social assistance. As far as the capital stock, what we really call the productive part of the economy in Gaza, um, the war between Israeli and Hamas at the end of 2008 destroyed 60% of whatever capital stock remained. And the bombings in 2014 destroyed 85% of whatever was left after that. Um, so the big picture is that in the 25 years between 1994, when Palestinians got in quote unquote independence, right? And 2018, uh, Gazans suffered a 44% decline in real GDP per capita. Um, and, and this is, again, much worse off than their West Bank cousins. Uh, basically, Gazans used, went from having about the same average income as someone in the West Bank to having just 30%. And, and, and this is despite the fact that the birth rates in Gaza were dr dramatically high. Um, at one point, the average Gazan had, had nearly seven children um, per, per family. So, Is it fair to consider Gaza is essentially now a large refugee camp? Well, it was born as a refugee camp from the, you know, the initial Arab-Israeli war, um, in a way. Um, and and you, can, you can think of it like that today, uh, in a way. Um, I, I, I just would also underline that, um, you know, more than 90% of the Strip's factories are closed. There's no outside investment. It dropped from 11% of the total Palestinian GDP in 94, when they got independence, to just 2.7% now. Um, the place has one power plant, uh, which barely operates because it can't get what it needs from the outside world because Israel controls what comes in and out so closely. These people don't have drinking water. There's no clean drinking water in Gaza. I mean, you can't underline how devastating it is to be there um, enough. So I just wanted to give some overall context um, on Gaza. Again, this is very different from the West Bank. It's not like things are great there either, but but this is just on a complete other level. And I, I can't imagine very many places in the world where someone would, 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 would say, I'll, I'll trade my life to go to Gaza. There's just, you talk about North Korea, China, the Uyghurs, I mean, it's about at that level, sadly. Let me add, can I add just two things to, um, I'll just to put what Alex put in, you know, in perspective, what Alex said. I remember um, in the 2014-2015 war during that period when I would talk um, with some of my friends in Gaza and say, what, what, what is your message to the world? And I remember even talking about this on CNN. At the time, um, they say, we just want to live. We want to have a good life. We want to um, have a future. Um, but sadly, now, when I ask my friends, what, what do you want from the world? They all almost unanimously say, we just want to get out. We don't want to be here anymore. There's no electricity, no cleaning water, no future, no horizon. Um, and, and it just kind of gives you an idea of how bad it is that the the number one demand the only and this is across the board regardless whether you're talking to an older man or a young um you know a young girl they just want to leave they don't want to be there anymore. and peter there's actually a term to describe what happened um again first you have a forced reliance on the israeli economy and a discouragement of sovereign industrial development under israeli military occupation that's what was happening from 67 to 87 um and and then a closure of that economic lifeline as Gazans were eventually over time prohibited from working in Israel, and then eventually just getting cut off completely from the outside world and then destroyed by war. So that um, journey is, is why Palestinians in Gaza today, they see the present as better than the future. They have very little hope. 
And the term used to describe what has happened in, in Gaza and in, to a lesser extent, the West Bank, is something called de-development. Um, and this was a term developed by a Harvard scholar in 1987 named Sarah Roy. And after years of fieldwork that she did in 87. So she was there in 87 and looking at what, what is the impact of 20 years of Israeli military occupation? And she could already see what, what would happen later. Um, again, that, you know, living standards might be going up a little bit, um, but it was very consumerist and it was not investing in the actual base of the society. And they were becoming more dependent and more dependent and more dependent. The Israeli government even saw this. In 91, the Israeli government put together something called the Saddam Committee to actually look at the economic performance of Gaza and sort of say, why is it so poor? And the conclusion was that, by, by the Israeli government, by the way, this is an official Israeli government report. The conclusion was that no priority was given to the promotion of local entrepreneurship in the business sector in the Gaza Strip. Moreover, the authorities discouraged such initiatives whenever they threatened to compete in the Israeli market with existing Israeli firms. So again, the outcome of today is not just because of war. It's not just because of the embargo um, and these sanctions. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it goes back decades and it's, an, it's, it's the outcome of an Israeli policy which sought to make Gaza and, and the West Bank um, dependent uh, on Israel and later through foreign aid uh, dependent on the outside world. It, it feels like, um, hmm, choose my words carefully, but it feels like the life of Gaza is being squeezed out of it. And if we're at the point now where people want to leave, um, it feels like this. I'm, I'll probably get um, some reaction to me saying this, but this is a tactic to squeeze the life out of what remains of Palestine. I think there's some truth to that. But if you zoom out a little bit and, and to kind of put again what Alex said in, into perspective, from 2007 to today, um, Gaza has been targeted um, to create a collapse in the political system there to push out Hamas. Um, this targeting has been done by the Palestinian Authority, who um, lost mainly because of their corruption in Gaza to Hamas, not because Hamas was um, any better, but by then Fatah was so bad that any alternative would have been better. And so people did end up electing Hamas. Um, and so the, the Palestinian Authority has employed a measure of, you know, a number of measures, including, um, you know, not wanting to pay for fuel to generate electricity, not uh, paying for salaries. Basically, they want Hamas to collapse. And they, they worked closely with the Egyptian government, with the Israeli government, um, to a certain extent to, to do this. So on top of the decades-old policies to suffocate Gaza and, and, and cause de-development, de like Sarah Roy said in her report, on top of that, there was a political campaign to also collapse the current- And, and Fadi, we gotta also obviously talk about Hamas. I mean, it, yes. it, it's, it's enough that these Gazans have to deal with um, de-development policy and, and war and um, economic strangulation but they have to deal with a dictatorship, a really brutal religious dictatorship. Why don't, why don't you fill us in a little bit on, on like what it's like to live under Hamas? I mean. So if you talk to the Palestinians who live in Gaza now, and they've been living under Hamas rule again since 2007, uh, it's very similar feelings to how they felt about Fatah 
back in 2007. Corruption, uh, authoritarianism, no freedoms whatsoever, um, and uh, corruption very explicit among the elites, among the um, the ruling uh, individuals within Hamas. Um, and so it, it's, again, it's replacing one evil with another. Um, yeah, and Peter, I think what we're getting at here, and now we can shift to money, but what we're getting at here with this opening and why I'm really glad you asked me to talk a little bit about Gaza is that none of these governments are looking out for the people. There is no good guy when it comes to the average Palestinian. Um, the Israelis, the Egyptians, Hamas, the PA, uh, they're all harming the Palestinian people through their actions. Uh, th there is no good side here. Um, now, I think what's um, really important is to, to, to address the fact that money and currency has been completely left out of the story of Palestinians. For example, there was an exhaustive report put out by Human Rights Watch, which is a credible organization that does a lot of work on this topic, in April of this year, um, hundreds of pages um, on, on all the political dimensions of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, okay? But the issues of things like currency, remittances, trade, monetary policy, completely missing from this report. They're just not mentioned as if they don't exist. Um, and that's where we can shed new light in this, in this conversation today for your listeners, because a lot of them are probably aware. Yeah, Gaza sounds like a terrible place. Yeah, the Palestinians, you know, ha have sort of been screwed by their government, by the Israelis, by the world. We, all, we know all of that. People probably know all these things. So what's new? Well, what's new is is to look at this through an economic lens, and and there we got to start. Can I, yeah, go uh, ahead, Peter. Can yeah. I yeah just uh, jump in and ask a question first? Um, what trade exists within Gaza right now? Uh, what money or monies are being used? Uh, I was where when I was in Venezuela, there were five currencies being used: the petro, the Bitcoin, the Colombian peso, the Bolivar, and the dollar. Um, what, what what currencies are being used within Gaza? Yeah, so uh, the dominant currency for day-to-day -day stuff is still the Israeli shekel in, in, in both West Bank and Palestinian territories uh, uh, and in Gaza, the, um, uh, both bank, bank deposits and paper money itself. Uh, the Jordanian currency is also used, um, as, is, as is the dollar in some places, um, and then Bitcoin and Tether. So those are your like, you got Bitcoin, Tether, the Jordanian currency, the Israeli currency, the dollar. The, 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 these, are, these are like currencies that are found in the West Bank and in, um, and, in, and, in, and in Gaza. And just one final question before we move on mm -hmm. to that next bit. Even if we were able or there is an ability to get money into Gaza to support people and support business, what is the reality of imports and exports, the ability to export products out of Gaza and the ability to import what is required to run a business with in Gaza? That's a great question. And I look, I interviewed a, a Gazan um, and I told his story um, in, in, in my essay for Bitcoin magazine, Can Bitcoin Be Palestine's Currency of Freedom? Um, and he told me that essentially there's no way to really start a productive business in Gaza because the, the things that you need from the outside world, you can never get on time, if at all. They're hugely expensive. There's massive price inflation. People are seeking going to Bitcoin as a, as a way out, really. I mean, basically, nobody wants to stay in Gaza permanently. People will always want to go to their homeland. I mean, you, you talk to North Koreans. North Koreans want to go home. They don't want to be in South Korea, largely. They don't want to be in America. They want to go home to their ancestral homeland, to their family. 
And I'm sure Gosman's are the same way, but right now they don't wanna be there. <laughs> like they wanna come back later when it's fixed, but they, they wanna get out. So this guy told me that people are basically selling everything. Some people obviously are selling everything for Bitcoin in Gaza in hopes that it can essentially buy them a way out uh, to get smuggled out, to go to a different country, to build a better future for their family. It's pretty bleak. I mean, it's very hard to see. I, I think there's a lot we can talk about, about building a resistance economy and building a society in the West Bank that could stand on, on its own. I firmly believe that's possible. I don't think that's possible in Gaza. I think it's just so destroyed that the best hope is that people leave. Um, and that's what people are doing with Bitcoin. And it's, I'll just note that, you know, look, when I talked to this guy, Bitcoin was around $30,000 and, you know, now it's 66 or whatever it is. And this is, this is, this, this is helping people. This is absolutely helping people. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my amazing show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. And as you know, I'm a massive football fan. Now, Sportsbet.io doesn't just cover football. They also cover tennis, motorsports, US sports, and they even have esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to Sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T io forward slash promotions okay let's talk about exodus wallet who i will be using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my bitcoin now as many of you know ux is super important to me i'm always going on about it so when exodus reached out to me and said pete we want to sponsor the show i was like okay cool but i've got to play with the app and you know what they crushed it the experience is so good that i am happy to recommend it to my friends my family and of course you now exodus desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your bitcoin in one beautiful application and with their mobile wallet you can send and receive safely using a qr code or address knowing that exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors so make sure you check it out yourself at exodus.com or search for exodus in the google or apple app stores also let's talk about casa the safest way for you to store your bitcoin now with the bitcoin price high this year i know some of you have been making some great gains and with forgotten passwords sim swaps and phishing attacks there are just too many ways for your bitcoin to be lost or stolen but with casa you never have to worry about your bitcoin again you see a casa multi-sig wallet allows you to take custody of your bitcoin but only move bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets and you get to distribute these wallets into different locations protecting you from a range of mistakes errors and vulnerabilities now, if you want to find out more about this, you can hit me up on my DMs or drop me an email. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. In terms of people wanting to leave, um, yeah, question for you, Fadi. Uh, uh, I, th you know, I think there's going to be probably two answers for this. Um, ideally, you would want to build up the economy within Palestine because you want people to stay, to stay in their homeland. But at the same time, if the best option for them is to leave, you would also want to support that. How do you feel about those kind of, that Let kind me of paradoxes? Just give you, it's a very good question. Um, normally, you want people to stay. You want people to be part of the social economic elevator and, and rise up and, and feel like they're working towards um, a, a bright future. But let me just give you an idea of how the corruption works to actually drive people out. So we had, for example, something called the Palestine Investment Fund. Palestine Investment Fund had almost a billion and a half dollars in it 
15, 16 years ago when the current president took it over. It should be now, at least, doubled in, in value, if not more, right? But the recent, if you look at the reports, it's actually gone down in value. And the way um, the Palestine Investment Fund works is that most of the people on the board of the fund are corrupt individuals who are related to the president um, economically or family-wise. And so the, the president, let's say, I'll give you an example. The president's um, uh, associates or, or, or his family might be on the board of a company and the company is doing really badly. It's not um, prospering. It's not um, moving up economically. And so they don't want to take the loss. What they do is they, um, because they're sitting on the board of the investment fund, they tell the fund to buy the company that is doing badly at a profit. So the money that belongs to the people, which is the Palestine Investment Fund, is systematically going down. Meanwhile, the private investment of these individuals is continuously going up. So that's just one example. Another example, the Palestinian Authority has helped certain businessmen who pay bribes to um, government officials to acquire public land under the banner of um, building affordable housing projects for young people. Uh, and so they confiscate the land and they take it um, because this is going to be public use and public benefit. Therefore, it justifies acquiring the land. So people are taking, robbed out of their land. Then instead of, then money is allocated for these type of projects and money by donors like the government of Qatar, government, other governments who guarantee up to 600, $700 million um, in, in value to build affordable housing, you know, apartments for young couples in the range of 40 to $50,000. And then fast forward today, none of these apartments are affordable. They're sold at 120, 150, up to $500,000. Meanwhile, salaries are still at a very, you know, have not changed. Um, and, and the ones benefiting are the government officials who are in partnership with the businessmen. And so if you're starting your life, you, you can't stay in, in the middle of this kind of mafia. You want to get out. There's, they're not giving you any incentive to stay or even a glimpse of hope that you could actually make it, right? Move. Let's go to the government sector. If you are going to get a government job, if you're not the son of someone who's already in government, good luck. You could be a Harvard graduate, a Harvard graduate, and they'll find a way to make you feel bad about yourself. Meanwhile, somebody who's failed high school could be a prosecutor, um, a judge, or you know, a, a head of the police or, or whatever. So it's a really, really corrupt system. It's so corrupt that the, the foreign minister of Sweden, you know, Sweden is one of the most pro-Palestinian um, countries, uh, and they were the first to recognize the state of Palestine in, in Europe. The foreign minister yesterday made a statement saying the corruption in the Palestinian Authority has gotten so bad that it's preventing us, Sweden, from uh, offering aid to the Palestinian people. So the system is built uh, to actually drive people out. And it's important to note again that 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 is an outcome of Israeli policy. Like they, they want this to be like this. Um, and, you know, again, just to get back to, to the money piece here for why we're here today, these are the big questions. Why is the Palestinian economy so dependent on Israel? 
Why is there so much corruption in the PA? Why do Palestinians use the shekel and not their own currency? Why can't Palestinians easily order goods on Amazon or receive money from abroad? So again, we want to dive into this. Um, and the Paris Agreement, Alex, I would add yeah. that. No, we're going to, that's what I'm getting to. And, you know, a friend of mine told me, a Palestinian economist told me that basically, again, we talk about Hamas, we talk about the PA, but the dom- he said the dominance of the Israeli actor over the Palestinian actor is, so, is entrenched in everything from the use of the shekel to the way that the Israeli government collects our income abroad to how we have no central bank. So there's like this driving theme, you know, that's decades old, that predates all of the wars that we, we've seen in the last 20 years. Um, that's like a designed plan uh, that, again, incentivized Palestinians to work in Israel and preventing prevented them from developing a manufacturing base and increased dependency on Israeli imports, right? So to give you some, some more numbers here, I think this is very important. Um, <clears throat> from like 68 to 87, again, the first two decades of occupation, the, <laughs> the industrial part of the Palestinian economy declined from 9% to 7%. So again, the, the economy is getting bigger. There's more people being born. And yet the, the manufacturing basis is shrinking. Same thing with agriculture. Um, in 1970, there were 59,000 agricultural workers in the Palestinian territories, about 5% of the population. Um, that actually declined to the mid 90s to 2% of the population. So when you talk about parts of your country that can grow and drive economic progress, they're being shrunk, not just like standstill, but they're, they're actively being uh, shrunk in Palestine by Israeli policies. Again, totally before the Oslo Accords, before the wars with Gaza, before Hamas, this was all happening. And basically dependence got near total in terms of Palestinians on Israel. Um, Basically um, 90% of the Palestinian imports uh, by the late 80s were were from Israel. Um, Palestinians were the second largest, largest buyer of Israeli goods after Americans. So psychologically, not only are they forcing you to use their currency, but you have to buy all your stuff from them. That, that leaves a massive psychological impact. Um, so again, uh, you know, by the late 80s, there was that economic depression in Palestine. People decided to rise up. You had the Intifada. Um, it, it did not succeed in, in giving real freedom, that's for sure. Um, but it did make the occupation very expensive for the Israelis. Um, so that was, one, that was one part of it that actually was interesting is that the after the Intifada, the, the occupation has actually cost the Israelis a lot. Before the Intifada, the first Intifada, the, the, the occupation was profitable for the Israelis. They could take advantage of natural resources, you know, at like basically below market rates. They could hire cheap labor. It was, it was good for them. Afterwards, it's been a struggle. Um, now, my government, the United States, has basically financed the occupation since then. Um, but the reality is that, again, getting back to this Paris Protocol, is that the Intifada uh, pushed the two actors, Israel and, and Palestine, together to a point where like something had to happen, right? And, and the world wanted to see something happen. So through this process, um, you know, there was like statehood, quote unquote, given to the Palestinians. And the president, Yasser Arafat, and the two Israeli um, leaders that were involved, they won the Nobel Peace Prize. People were like really excited about this. Um, the Oslo Accords were hailed around the world as something really hopeful, but underneath was something quite sinister. And, and that's the, the, what's called the Protocol on Economic Relations or, or the Paris Protocol. Now, what this did is this basically was a document that was supposed to only last five years. It was supposed to expire in 99 and be replaced with something else, but it, it remains in effect 28 years later. 
Um, and it's a document that basically says Palestinians won't have their own central bank. They won't get their own currency. Um, instead, they get something called the Palestinian Monetary Authority, which I think is, is kind of darkly funny because it doesn't have any, it doesn't have any authority over pretty much anything. Um, they control the banks. Uh, the Israeli new shekel was mandatory legal tender in West Bank and Gaza. All the loans and deposits are denominated in shekels. Um, and, you know, it's not just the banking sector and the currency. That would be a lot on its own. It's just like anything coming into the Palestinian ter territories is, is monitored, inspected by the Israelis, and they charge a fee, what's called a clearance fee. So 3% um, of any monies coming in, they, they take a cut of, and that, that helps finance the Israeli state. Um, <clears throat> there's an ability that the Israelis have to obviously control trade policy. They get to limit what goes in. Um, they get to uh, kind of a crazy thing is they act, you know, they collect all the income of these, all these Palestinian workers who live in Israel and work in Israel. They collect that. And then every month they send that as like a check kind of to, to the PA. And sometimes they withhold that check and they're like, we're not going to pay you unless you do X. So they use this power as a weapon against their, their opponent. Right. Um, and even Palestinian workers, which I find this to be really crazy, the Palestinian workers who work in the, in Israel, they, ha they have to pay social security taxes, union fees, security taxes, and they don't get the benefits. So they're, they're definitely treated as like these second-class citizens. And, you know, they're not Israeli, so, you know, it is what it is. But the, the, the collective impact of this over decades can be summed up in one statistic uh, that between 94, which again was hopeful, independence, we're gonna have this new beautiful country. Between 94 and 2011, the Palestinian manufacturing sector declined from 19% to 10%. So again, it, it did not address the structural damage that was being done during the occupation of a shrinking sovereignty. In fact, it expedited it. And then it got even worse in the 2000s uh, with wars and with corruption. Um, so I, I think that it's quite important to understand that Palestinians don't have monetary freedom. Uh, they have no kind of fiscal freedom at all. Um, and look, even if they did have fiscal freedom, like let's say tomorrow the UN comes in and says, oh, we're gonna make a central bank digital currency, which has been discussed, right, for the Palestinians. Um, are, we, are, we sure, sir, are we so sure, Fadi, that the PA would be like a responsible uh, like central bank? Like, is that something we can, um, we can trust? Not at all. As long as we don't have, you know, a democratic government that's elected, um, there's no guarantee that the corruption would not move from paper money to digital currency. Um, but, but to add on, on to what you were saying, Alex, I, I think the best investment that the Israeli occupation made um, in the West Bank and Gaza is that they've found um, a banker, which is the Palestinian Authority, that can work both as a banker and also as a security officer. Um, for people who don't know this, 66% of the Palestinian Authority's budget 66% goes to security forces. Um, meanwhile, health, uh, education, and everything else gets to split the other third. Uh, so you're talking about two thirds go to security uh, in, an, in an area that is militarily occupied by, by the Israelis. Um, and so you can imagine the level of, of, of corruption. You can imagine the level of misuse of funds. Um, and, and, and just to go back to your point about the Palestine Monetary Authority, that is the most corrupt place. It, it, basically, what they do, it's not a central bank, obviously. What they do is 
it's a clique of people who are very closely um, related. And if you want to bring in $10 million, $100 million into the, into the Palestinian territories, they'll help you um, by blinding the system where it's not raising flags if you pay the right bribe, basically. Uh, meanwhile, they will be the same people who will flag you if you're trying to transfer $10,000 without paying the correct bribe to them. Uh, why? Because they're doing security you know, uh, favors and, and security services uh, on the other end. And sometimes, you know, it, it's hard for the, um, for the other security system, like the Israelis or the Americans or the Jordanians who are also plugged in with the Palestinian Authority. It's hard to pick up when they're actually reporting something genuine or when they're actually reporting something because of uh, corruption uh, reasons. Um, and Alex, we talked about this. Um, for example, if you're a Palestinian who wants to get an Israeli permit to work inside Israel, unless you pay a financial bribe to the Minister of uh, Interior and Social Affairs in the amount of about 2,500 Israeli shekels per month, uh, your permit will be stopped. And the way they stop it is the PA will send a report in your name to the Israeli security services saying so-and-so is a security risk and we recommend that his permit be stopped. Can you imagine the Palestinian Authority sending an, a reference, a false reference to the Israeli authorities asking them to block a Palestinian from getting to work because they refuse to pay a bribe. And so the system is so, so corrupt so stacked against um, you know the average citizen that to me the only sign of hope that I when I'm looking at at, at this is actually um, looking at something like Bitcoin because you are able to circumvent all these different levels of uh, restriction whether it's the Israelis or the Palestinian Authority or even Hamas. Yeah, and there, there's one more important element to get to before we discuss how Bitcoin could really you know be this currency of freedom for Palestinians is the phenomenon of foreign aid. So again, I'd love this opportunity to get through some of the backdrop, the context that's so rarely talked about. But again, we have uh, historical trends plus the Paris Protocol and Oslo Accords, making it more and more um, the reality that Palestinians were dependent on Israel, right? Okay. But then, as I mentioned before, after the second intifada, like after 2000, Israel started restricting the number of Palestinians that could work in Israel. So between 2000 and 2003, the number of West Bank Palestinians that were permitted, as Fadi was just discussing, to work in Israel dropped by 53%. And the permits for Gazans dropped by 86%, okay? So as a result, Palestinian per capita uh, GDP dropped by 40%. Okay, so this, just to give context, this means about 20 years ago, the Palestinians went through an economic collapse that was worse than the 2001 financial collapse in Argentina and worse than the Great Depression in the US in the 1930s. So that, that's kind of what they, went, what they went through after the promise of the Oslo Accords. That's what the Oslo Accords gave them, right? So what ended up happening is before the Oslo Accords, countries like Canada, the United States, Japan, they couldn't, they couldn't give foreign aid to the Palestinians because they didn't want to give it to the occupying military power. So once uh, Arafat became quote unquote independent, the one thing that did change is that foreign aid started coming in. And it has come in a lot, okay? There's been about $40 billion spent by outside foreign aid in the West Bank and Gaza since 93, making Palestinians one of the highest per capita recipients of aid in the world. Um, but they, they live in what's called an aid paradox. So there's like larger and larger amounts of aid coming in, 
with a downward decline of socioeconomic and human development. Um, in, in Gaza, of course, that th those declines have been dystopian. Um, and I think what's important to note for Americans listening is that our country continues to supply Israel with about $3.8 billion of aid per year, by and large, financing this structure, financing this occupation. Um, and we remain Israel's primary market for exports and, and, and imports, right? Um, so this makes for this really strange situation where we already know the Palestinians are like completely reliant on aid. Like basically if the check doesn't come in from the outside donor, the PA can't pay its people. Like the aid is that important, right? But the Israelis receive more aid per capita than Palestinians. I think that that's an interesting thing to note. So the US government and its people, we, we, we have financed the structure, you know, whether we like it or not, whether you're like super pro hawkish Israel or you're super critical of our policy, this is just the reality, it's the fact. Like, we are financing the whole thing. Um, there's a, a a guy named Sheer Hever, who's a really interesting Israeli academic. And he calls this thing a profitable venture. And the, the reason, uh, meaning the occupation, and the reason why is because Israel receives payments in foreign hard currency. So the Israeli central bank gets dollars, they get Canadian dollars, they get euros, but they build walls and pay troops in shekels, right? So as a result, the foreign currency reserves in the Israeli central bank go up um, and these can be used to strengthen the shekel. And as a result, the shekel has actually appreciated against the dollar 25% over the last 20 years. Um, so in a weird way, like, you know, Israel continues to sort of profit from, from the occupation. And it's, it's, it's kind of sad to think about, um, but as Fadi is pointing out, so does the PA. The PA profits so much. I mean, Yasser Arafat's corruption was so legendary. I mean, he was he was estimated to be worth billions. Um, he had his wife in Paris, and he would wire hundreds of millions of dollars out to different you know secret accounts. Um, and again, this has resulted in a reality where um, there's just you know basically economic depression. And how, could you really blame Palestinians? for trying to work in Israel. If the average wage is 123 shekels in the West Bank and 264 in Israel, they're gonna do it to themselves because they, they have to, because they have to support their families. So they're gonna leave their farms in the West Bank where they can't make any money and where they're getting crushed by imported goods from Israel. And they're gonna go work for Israel and they're gonna build stuff over there. And, and this has just been this long story over the last few decades of this getting like more intense and more intense and more intense. So what, what do people do about it? So there's long been this idea in the Palestinian discourse of a resistance economy, which would allow people to like stay, resist, gain sovereignty in the West Bank, obviously. Um, after the second intifada, there was an Arab-Israeli author, a guy named Azmi Bishara, and he, he, he lamented the lack of a single Palestinian bank, insurance company, or printing press. And he called on Palestinian investors to begin to think of local economic ventures with their own structures, market, and labor. Um, but as his contemporaries have pointed out, how could you do this if everything's reliant on the shekel and the Israelis control all the banks? Um, what they basically said is they've always lacked the tool to make the resistance economy happen. Okay, enter Bitcoin. So on the back of everything we've just gone through, um, now we're seeing the emergence of something interesting where Palestinians, both in the West Bank and Gaza and their counterparts in countries across the Arab world and Middle East, including Turkey and Lebanon, Syria, their governments are failing them. Their occupiers are failing them. So they turn to Bitcoin as a currency basically of resistance, of a currency that can't be debased and that can't be stopped. 
And, and that is why I think Fadi has, has said that maybe there's some hope here, where there's just very little hope elsewhere. Um, maybe there's some hope in Bitcoin. Well, let's talk about that then, because um, you and I, Alex, uh, understand Bitcoin very well. We understand how it can help people in living under authoritarian regimes or in third world countries. Uh, I do come back to the point, though, is um, what is the goal here? Is it for people who are already trying to send remittances back to be able to get money back to their family? Is it for people who want to send money to support someone like myself, if I could, would there be a, uh, a charity I could send money to? Is it to try and uh, encourage aid, uh, providers of aid to send money back? What, what is, is it everything? Let me give you a couple examples. And then I, I really, I'll ask Fadi to, to, to color in some of this. Um, but one would, would be simply having access to um, a savings instrument. Um, in the West Bank, forget Gaza, like, what people do is they save in real estate and it has driven the real estate market insane out there. I mean, it, it is comparable to like very advanced, expensive Western cities, the you know price per square meter. Um, it is what, it's the only thing people can put in where they think they'll reliably get more money in the future. They don't have access to the S&P 500. You can pay somebody to try and get you exposure to uh, like a, a stock exchange or some equities, but it's very difficult. Um, there is no Robin Hood for Palestinians. Like the, so, so, you know, number one, first and foremost, it gives them a way to save uh, for the future that does not require a particular nationhood or passport or bank account status. Number two, it connects them to the outside world. So um, for Gazans, I mean, it's almost impossible to get money from the outside world. It has to go through all these loops and, and loopholes, and then eventually they have to get Hamas to sign off on it, and it's just absurd. Meanwhile, tons of people in Gaza have smartphones. Uh, they have social media. They can like film stuff and share it with the outside world. Anyone who uses social media can use Bitcoin, and it's growing in an unstoppable way there, so much so that the government has been forced to, I've learned, meaning Hamas, essentially. They run brick-and-mortar exchange shops in Gaza where you know, public sector employees and others are basically taking their shekels um, or Jordanian currency and, and buying Bitcoin or selling the Bitcoin into local currency to buy stuff. So the local government is even being forced into, into doing this uh, simply because there's so much demand from the public. Is there a premium being paid? Yes, yes, no, 100%. It, it's, from what I can understand, it seems like the government or the people who operate on behalf of the government uh, are taking a cut. Now in the West Bank, it's very different. Binance is active there. So you can basically link up your Bank of Palestine account to, to Binance. It only allows you to buy Tether, which is important to point out. Like that's one of the reasons why Tether is so popular in these, in these, in these areas. And then from there, you can use the Tether to buy Bitcoin. Um, but I, I think it would be helpful to understand and for Fadi to explain what it's actually like to, to, to be in, let's say, America and to try and send $1,000 into Palestine. Like Fadi, why don't you walk us through that? I think it's so important. It's a nightmare, to be honest, because first of all, I worry who's going to call me and ask me, why are you sending this money? Is it going to be the US government? Is it going to be the Israelis? Is it going to be the Palestinian Authority? Um, so, you know, forget about just the level of worry that you have to go through. Um, I had to send a wire transfer to my lawyer who lives in Ramallah. Um, she was brought in and interrogated by the Palestinian Authority because I am, a, you know, a critic of the Palestinian Authority's corruption, 
she was brought in, investigated, um, interrogated. Why? Why did you receive this payment? What is it for? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And they almost they almost denied it, um, where she couldn't she couldn't get it. Um, but because it's a corrupt system, she ended up calling some of the higher up people that she could reach um, and, and get her her payment. Um, that's just one face of of the complications. The other face is. You know, you worry, you know, like you said, Peter, there there are families, there are charities who help orphanages, uh, who help uh, disadvantaged uh, students or, or, or people or and, and you want to help. But at the same time, you don't want to end up um, on a list or, you know, on somebody's list or be implicated in something that obviously is completely uh, contrary to your intentions and so on and, and so forth. And then there's the the usual thing which we said before, which is the the corruption aspect. Um, if you're sending a ten thousand dollar wire, you will get a call from the Palestinian Authority that says that you want this wire to go through. What's our cut? You know, can you give us two thousand? Can you give us five thousand? And they might not even ask, can you give? They say this is the fee to 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 have the wire go through. Otherwise, and they've done this to people. They've done this to businessmen who were based in the Gulf, who were sending wire transfers to companies that they started in the West Bank and Gaza, they, they were brought in by the security services and told either you pay the bribe to have the wire transfers go, and then for us also not to ask any questions about the previous wire transfers, or we will accuse you of supporting terrorism um, and doing money laundering, or you know, a li- the list is ready. But you pick whichever one you want. And, and this is something that all, um, not just Palestinians in the West in the West Bank deal with, but also in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem. I mean, basically, you get red flagged, you get discriminated against, your account gets frozen. So, you know, number one, again, why Bitcoin? To, for savings, for the future. Number two, for cross-border payments. Uh, again, like with your bank account being so dysfunctional and with the fees for Western Union being so high and with such a high likelihood that things are going to get delayed, the fact that now you can send a decent amount of money instantly, peer to peer from phone to phone is a revolution. And I, I interviewed a, a former banker who lives in Ramallah. And while we were talking, I had him set up a moon wallet and I sent him like five bucks from Boston where I was at the time to Ramallah. It was instant, it blew his mind. I mean, cause he, he'd used Bitcoin before, but never lightning. So, you know, even the usage, we're just at the beginning of what's possible. Um, the third thing, beyond savings and cross-border payments is to fight inflation, which which is counterintuitive because you're like, wait a second, but the Palestinians have the shekel, which is performing really well. There's not inflation, there is inflation. So so I'll explain why. Um, a laptop arrives in Tel Aviv, costs $1,500, okay? Now, a laptop in Ramallah is gonna cost $3,500. Why? It's the very same laptop. The thing is when the laptop arrives in Tel Aviv to go and then is then, sort of marked to go out into Ramallah. Remember, the Palestinians cannot import directly. It all has to go through Israel. So it's got to sit in a truck. It's got to go to a warehouse. It's got to have inspections. It's got to go on another truck. It's got to go into Palestine. There's laptops get stolen. There's security guards that have to get hired. So by the time the goods get into the West Bank or or Gaza to a much higher extent, there's massive price inflation. So even though like even in the last 20 years, there's arguably been some like deflation in Israel for some some Israelis in certain things. There's been like ridiculous price inflation in the, in the territories for this reason, right? Um, it's really interesting just to give you the numbers on it. Uh, 
uh, after 2000, Israel experienced deflation. Um, but by 2008, uh, and, and before 2000, the, the sort of prices in, in the two territories kind of in Israel and Palestine kind of matched each other. But after that moment, it split, right? And basically by 2008, the same, the same product would have cost 32% more in any Palestinian place than any Israeli place. So the third, the third reason is to fight inflation. And then the fourth and final reason I'll mention here is something that Fadi alluded to, is if you're gonna donate to a Palestinian charity, I mean, good luck. If, if you're an American or a Brit, like that thing's gonna get flagged, there's gonna be questions. Um, you're gonna be donating to a good cause. Like I spoke to a charity that's working on agricultural sustenance in, in, in the West Bank and on helping people actually turn their property into like uh, sustainable farms they can't find a payment processor who will who will allow them to receive donations. And they're just farmers, they're not doing anything wrong. So they're using Bitcoin now and it's working. So, and they didn't, they didn't want me to reveal the name of their organization because they don't really want people to know that they're using Bitcoin, right? So there is this shadow economy that's starting to happen and, and it's unstoppable. And again, I, I think it gives some hope um, for the future, but I, you know, it's probably important for Fadi and I to also just, just you know, acknowledge the fact that everybody's going to use it. This means the bad folks are going to use it too. Like there, there's, you know, this is an open technology, just like the internet, just like email. Um, and that's something that that people just need to keep in, in mind. It is for everybody. It that does remind me of what uh, Peter Van Valkenberg said, but it's, uh, I think it was a Senate testimony. He said, we can focus on the bad uses of Bitcoin, but for every criminal uh, or money launderer who uses Bitcoin, there's somebody who needs access to open and free money that benefits from this, whether it's somebody in, I mean, his examples were uh, within Nigeria or Belarus where people were protesting against the government. So I think we all, we've all we all come to accept that. Um, the The reality is, is that the corrupt government has access to uh, what we would consider bad money right now. And, you know, they're going to have access to Bitcoin, but we can't really focus on that. We have to focus on what it is people need, which is access to right. good money. And, and how can we do that, right? So here's where I struggled mm. and why I didn't do much, again, act, activism in this space at all, really. It's because I didn't know if I could make a difference. I thought it would be hollow. Like what does posting free Palestine on Twitter really do? Um, not a lot. Um, and, you know, but maybe today we can make a difference by educating people about Bitcoin. I mean, consider, I mean, again, today Palestinians have no monetary independence. They're increasingly used, uh, forced to use the currency of their occupier. Their capital base is shrinking. They become more consumerist, more like slaves to debt, basically, um, entirely reliant on foreign aid. And in Gaza, their society is basically destroyed. Um, so what, what, what can we do? Well, Sarah Roy, who coined the term de-development, when, when she was reflecting on this recently, and she's been thinking about this for 30, 40 years, um, what is to be done uh, one of her conclusions was that knowledge production is itself a form of resistance. And I think that's so key. Like we can, there's nothing to lose by sharing information about Bitcoin in Arabic to help people understand how to be their own bank, how to be self-sovereign, how to connect with their families. It's not magic. It's not going to help in terms of solving the situation tomorrow. It's not going to liberate everybody, but it, but it can make a, a small and meaningful difference in somebody's life in the way that a hashtag cannot. And this is why I find it so staggering that none of the other Palestinian rights organizations are talking about Bitcoin. It's like, it doesn't exist. If you look at their websites, there's not a single mention or Amnesty Human Rights Watch. None of the other groups that, that, that spend a lot of money on this topic 
are actually talking about the one thing that I think could actually make the biggest difference. So that's just something I'm tracking carefully. Do you think that's just because it's a lack of education and understanding? Um, I honestly think it's a it's a very simple reason. I, I don't think they've caught up um, on it yet. Uh, and like Alex said, quoting uh, Sarah Roy, uh, maybe knowledge uh, sharing and knowledge uh, spreading is, is not just uh, educating the Palestinian public, but also reaching out to the different organizations that are working um, on, on the Palestinian issue and highlighting uh, the importance of Bitcoin and how it can make uh, make a difference. And uh, to be fair, I, I you know I, I, everything I've learned so far about Bitcoin has come from Alex, and then, um, and, and that's when it hit me. I, you know, I've been promoting the idea of building a development bank for the Palestinians uh, that, regardless of the volatility of the political situation, um, this bank would you know similar to the world you know like the World Bank group, but away from the hands of the corrupt Palestinian Authority and and, and, and others is able to um, promote infrastructure projects uh, and, and educational projects and so on. And then when I finally understood the concept of Bitcoin and the value of Bitcoin, um, I said, this is the perfect idea for the bank should definitely have cryptocurrency uh, as its tender, should definitely adopt the idea of uh, Bitcoin to, to do this because then you really are an independent entity that is working uh, free of any of the, you know, not just the economic um, issues like inflation and uh, worrying about monetary supply and, uh, and currency manipulation and, and so forth, but you're also away from the hands of corrupt individuals um, and, and, and so on. So I, I think, again, this is a concept that is born um, first in the in, in in the brain of of Alex, and we're slowly slowly getting uh, you know a, a better understanding of it. And you know, so I, I wouldn't blame Amnesty or, or these groups, but I, I do think that they need to pay attention to this. Yeah, let's let's have the conversation. Look, I'm not I'm not blaming them. I, look, yeah. I, it took me years to figure this out, um, and I'm trying to share that with as many people as possible. I will be having a conversation with the Gaza Sky Geeks soon um, to help them, you know, bring bring them up to speed on this. And I think there's some excitement there that some of the young people that they work with might wanna get involved in coding Bitcoin, contributing to Bitcoin. Um, I mean, look, well, here's an interesting thing, Peter. You can be in Ramallah or you can even be in Gaza. As long as you have an internet connection, you could make a lucrative career. You get paid in Bitcoin. Like you, th there are brilliant software engineers in Palestine. I mean in the same way that Nigerians uh, are are working as Bitcoin core contributors and are working for Western companies and making a lot of money, same thing could happen in Palestine. So that's what the currency actually enables is actual economic activity, which I think is the most important part. I was interviewing this one um, uh, American, Palestinian-American uh, woman. She's a, she's a remarkable entrepreneur based in East Jerusalem. And she was telling me that you know, aside from Bitcoin, like that just this idea that for her independence is financial is what she told me. And she said, if we don't have financial freedom, nothing's gonna change. That's basically what she said. And she looked at other resistance movements around the world. She spent some time growing up in Atlanta and she looked at the civil rights movement in America. She looked at Northern Ireland and all these places, there started to be this resistance economy built up where people would exchange currency with each other. So some of the ideas that, that she and her friends have is that Palestinian businesses could start accepting Bitcoin as kind of this like 
um, parallel economy. And it's like, it's almost like a peaceful protest against both the PA and Israel. Like you're opting into something that they don't control. And I think that this gets really important as we turn this corner and start looking at the future of central bank digital currencies. Because I think it's sort of inevitable that what will happen is that the World Bank or the IMF will team up with Israel and the PA and they'll say, we're gonna be introducing, a maybe it's a Palestinian currency or maybe it's just a digital shekel, I'm not sure. But this thing is gonna be aimed at basically destroying the informal sector in Palestine. Like one of the last bastions of freedom in the West Bank is the fact that everybody uses cash for everything. Well, guess what happens when all that cash goes out the window? That cash is the way that you can do stuff without the PA knowing, without the you know IDF knowing. And that's good. That's like your privacy, that's your freedom. You don't want that stuff to get confiscated, stolen, um, taken up by this big sort of scam that's going on between, between these two powers. So the unfortunate thing is that cash is gonna slowly disappear. So what's gonna take its place? If it's some sort of CBDC, I mean, that's gonna be even worse. I mean, it's gonna be so easy for the Israeli military to blacklist anybody that they don't like. They could do it with the touch of a button. So that's why it's so, so essential for us to continue to promote uh, Bitcoin as a resistance currency. I, look, I think that we always have this kind of, uh, saying, Fadi, that like, fix the money, fix the world. Obviously it's tongue in cheek. It doesn't actually work like that, but it, it has a grain of truth to it. And I think that if Palestinians can't fix their money, I don't, they can't fix their world. I mean, it's part of it. It's a very important part of it. So we're here for you. We wanna help educate and translate things into Arabic and into Hebrew. And, you know, I'm happy that my article got put into both Arabic and Hebrew, it's out there. I've gotten a lot of interesting, quiet feedback from a lot of people on it. It's not something that everybody wants to be super outspoken about because again, it could get them in trouble. Um, but the, the rise of Bitcoin in, in, in the Palestinian territories, I think is unstoppable. And I think whatever we can do to expedite it will actually help bring uh, an actual sense of justice and individual empowerment sooner rather than later. And I, I just don't know any other tool or construct or framework or ideology that, that could do the same. Alex, if people are listening uh, what and they want to get involved, they want to support, what are the things they can do? You've mentioned provide translations of content. Is there anything else that specifically people should be doing? Or should we be thinking wider and saying, uh, yes, it's, it's great that we can have content translated, but should we be try, trying to drive towards us some kind of content hub, which is getting translate for, translated for a, a number of uh, different languages around the world? Is that something we should be striving well, for now? I don't think it can be done at the official level, because again, hearing about what, what Fadi has taught us in this conversation, the PA is not gonna be interested in any sort of reform that's gonna benefit for the people. No, they, they want everything for themselves and they like their little relationship with the Israelis. Um, but if we could get into schools, like if we could get teachers and NGOs in, in the West Bank at least to start teaching about financial literacy and start teaching about Bitcoin, just as a, hey, it exists, it's this thing, it allows you to do X, Y, and Z, if you wanna use it, let us know, we'll teach you. I really believe in Bitcoin as a voluntary phenomenon. I don't think you can force it on people um, or I don't think you should. But I, I think that Fadi, we could, if we could get it as like a, just get it into the dialogue over there, uh, especially when it comes to uh, educational institutions, um, I think it'd be a great start. So my goal is to visit uh, next year. I would love if Peter, you could join. Um, mm -hmm. we would, we could go to the, we, maybe we go to beer Zate, Fadi, we could give, we can get, we can have, hold a workshop. We can just mm -hmm. have a discourse. I'd love, the most important thing is to hear people's concerns about Bitcoin and we'll walk through those concerns and we'll 
point out how this is not a magic dust that you can sprinkle and fix everything, but that it is a tool and it's a very powerful tool. And at the minimum, we just want the young Palestinian youth to, to know how to use the tool. Um, Cause it can absolutely fix certain things. Like again, receiving a payment from abroad is just a no brainer upgrade with Bitcoin. Oh, no brainer upgrade with Bitcoin. Um, or saving over a three, four, five year period of time, Bitcoin is gonna crush the other options that Palestinians have. Um, and if you're starting an organization or you're trying to do investigative work against the PA or the IDF, your income from abroad is almost certainly gonna be blocked. I mean, I spoke to an organization the other day that this happened to them. A European group wanted to donate to them. It was actually a, a, a Jewish group that had, had all this money they have in a fund from Holocaust survivors actually. And they wanted to donate to Palestinians uh, in, in, shot in solidarity. And the wire got rejected. And ultimately the group decided that they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to send the money because it was too difficult. So this Palestinian group, which is doing great work, lost a huge amount of money due to bureaucracy. So again, showing people the tools will at least allow them to surmount these small challenges so that they can go and fight the big challenge, which is ultimately like, how, how do they free Palestine? You know, I, I, that's an ambitious question, but I do think that we can help free Palestinians uh, with Bitcoin. You know how there's a slogan, you know, uh, every political movement there has that slogan, you know, so-and-so is the answer. Um, you know, Hamas would say sometimes Islam is the answer or Fatah would mm -hmm. say, you know, Fatah is the answer. <laughs> I want to start a movement with Alex that says Bitcoin is the answer. How do you, how, how do you say that in Arabic, Fadi? Bit, Bitcoin will help. All right, let's it, do it. It, it rings. Um, let's get t-shirts. Let's get stickers. Let's go. <laughs> Right. That'll be Let's our go. tour when we go to the West Bank next year. We'll we'll make it happen. Um, so count on me, Fadi. Whatever whatever we can do, I look forward to working with you. And super grateful to Peter for having us on to allow us to to share these ideas. And hopefully, it sparks some things. And if you're listening and you want to help, you know, please reach out. My DMs are open. Well, Alex, as ever, thank you. Um, I appreciate your work at no end, uh, and I appreciate you always coming on and being so eloquent with. Uh, your explanation is of these tricky subjects is, is look it's I find the whole uh, issue of Palestine particularly Gaza depressing mm -hmm. so if there are things we can do the platform remains uh, permanently open to you Alex and Fadi if you ever want to come back on or anything you want to push you just let me know this uh, remains open to you I'll do anything I can to support and I would love to travel there next year with Alex and, uh, and go and support people uh, in uh, the West Bank, but maybe even Gaza. We, we, we will see. Uh, everybody knows Alex, uh, but Fadi, if people want to follow you, say on Twitter, where would they follow you? My Twitter is easy. It's just my last name, El Salamin, E-L-S-A-L-A-M-E-E-N. Well, listen, we'll put this all in the show notes. Uh, we'll get this out soon and uh, do everything we can to support the, the work of people trying to help people in Palestine. So good luck. Uh, keep doing your good work. You've obviously faced quite a bit of danger doing it. So um, you know, I commend you for that. And Alex, just keep crushing it like you always do. Uh, good to see you both. Take Thank care. You. Take care and peace. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch with me, the best thing to do is head over to our Telegram channel. Otherwise, you can hit me up on hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And if you want to support the show, please just head over to Apple Podcasts. Go and leave me a review. Hopefully, you think the show deserves five stars. All right, I'll see you all soon. 